Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we are so looking forward to the eternity that you have described through your Apostle John in Revelation. We look around our world and it seems like there's just chaos everywhere. Things are out of our control. Things are going badly. And we are even unable to gather together physically to be in each other's presence to worship you this morning. And yet, you have provided us with the technology that we can all gather together in spirit, that I can preach from your word and it can be heard around the world, that this sermon can be recorded and listened to at any time. And Father, I pray that it would be an encouragement to many. We look forward to the time when you make all things new, when we can gather together without concern, only with joy and with worship in your presence. Father, I pray that you would speak through me from your word this morning, that you would be honored and glorified by the preaching of your word, and that you would be pleased with all of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope that the past week has been a blessing to all of you and that you were able to get some rest, enjoy some time with your families, eat some good food, and spend some time genuinely considering all that you have to be thankful for. For most of us, 2020 has been a long year, and it has had enough calendar-defining events to fill a decade. And I know that many of us are thankful but 2020 is almost over. We have had massive wildfires, including in Australia and California. There has been an impeachment of a United States president, a trial which the president was ultimately acquitted from. There has been the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. There have been riots and protests all over our country for a variety of reasons. Of course, who can forget Chaz, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle. We have seen the defunding of several police departments in major cities in our country. There have been a number of high-profile human trafficking and pedophilia cases with dozens of children being rescued all over our country, and especially the arrest of Ghislaine Maxwell. We've had murder hornets. There was an explosion in Beirut that killed at least 190 people and injured thousands. We have had the death of a sitting Supreme Court justice and the appointment of her replacement and all of the drama that has come along with that. Basic American freedoms like religious liberty and freedom of speech have been challenged in ways that we have never seen before in America. Of course, it's an election year and the drama from our presidential election continues. And there is COVID-19. Perhaps the two biggest issues for most of us this year, have been the election and COVID-19, both of which we seem to be right in the thick of now. So it would not be surprising if the atmosphere of some of our Thanksgiving celebrations was a little more subdued than usual this year, especially if you had to cancel travel plans or if family was unable to come to visit for the holidays. Maybe your celebration this week didn't feel quite as festive as it usually does. I suspect that all of us could use a little encouragement right about now. But before I get to that, allow me to exhort you this morning. 
As we move into the Christmas season and then on to a new year, don't leave Thanksgiving behind. Thanksgiving is an excellent antidote to anxiety and worry and fear. I want to challenge you to spend the next month determined, no matter what happens, to be as thankful as you can possibly be. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now let me be clear. I don't mean to suggest that you can't be honest about the hard day or the hard week or the hard year that you've had. Under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, the same man who wrote the above exhortation wrote, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? The Apostle Paul was honest about the difficulties of this life. We can be honest about the troubles that we face. In fact, I suggest that the only real hope that any of us can have for life to get better in any meaningful way is to be honest about the way things are. We have to honestly evaluate our struggles, because if we minimize or try to gloss over the tribulations of this life, we will be content to live in them, and we'll never try to fix real problems. On the other hand, if we try to focus too much on the hardships of this life, we will be discouraged and anxious, and when hope comes along, we will be tempted to reject it, because we just don't believe that it's real. If we're in a burning building, too much optimism says, I don't need to get out. This is fine. While too much pessimism says, why bother trying to get out? I'm sure I won't make it. And to be honest, we need the right perspective. We don't just look on the bright side. We don't just see things in the way that makes them the most manageable for us. We don't indulge in self-pity and wallow in despair over manageable or temporary concerns. The right perspective is the one that sees things as they actually are. Our text for this morning is John chapter 16, verse 33. Just one verse. John 16:33. Now here we are ending the nearing the end of a discourse that Jesus started in chapter 13 where he predicted his betrayal and then told his disciples that he would be leaving them and where he was going, they could not follow. It is fair to say that his disciples were stressed at this point, that they were discouraged. And so in chapter 14, he begins to comfort them. I want to point out 
that Jesus' disciples did not fully understand what he was talking about at this point. They just didn't get it. Despite Jesus' having foretold his death and his resurrection, they didn't make the connections that would have helped them to understand why things had to go the way that they were about to. And so they were unnerved by his talk, and they were certainly discouraged by the circumstances that took place that night and over the next few days. Jesus says in John 16:33, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Now, when we're discouraged, we don't usually want intellectual exercise. We want empathy. We don't want to feel like we have to build a bridge. We just want to feel better. And let me be clear, there is nothing wrong with wanting to feel better. But I hope that you will bear with me this morning as we take a systematic, intellectual, step-by-step approach to encouragement. Because I don't just want you to feel better. I don't want to give you a pill that's going to calm your emotions and wear off eight hours from now. At this point, many of us need more than a pick-me-up that's going to wear off before COVID-19 goes away. Because as much as we all want to believe that 2021 just has to be better than 2020, the truth is we don't have any guarantee that it will be. If we want to be prepared for whatever lies ahead, if we don't want to be undone by a seemingly constant stream of discouragement, we are going to need a permanent reference point so that no matter how much life throws us around, we can orient ourselves to the proper perspective and know that there is hope. Friends, our emotions are fickle. But if in the depths of our struggle, we can know for certain that things are going to get better, then the depression and the anxiety that we go through can seem manageable until that time comes then we can have the kind of peace that surpasses the understanding of the world. Then the world will look at us and say, look around you, everything is burning down, how can you be so calm? And we can identify with Jesus' disciples a little bit right now, can't we? Many of us have been with him for some time. We have listened to his teaching. We have an idea of how we fit into the big picture of God's plan for history, although sometimes our ideas are not entirely accurate like Jesus' disciples. But the details can be a little fuzzy. We're going through some tough times, and we are anxious about the next few days, or weeks, or months, and what they have in store for us. So let's set a goal this morning. In their distress, Jesus gives his disciples a goal. He says, These things I have spoken to you, so that you may have peace. In me. At this point in a year like 2020, is there a better summary of what our souls are craving than peace? We want the chaos to stop. We want some rest. We want life to go back to normal. We aren't looking for unending high octane exhilaration or constant emotional high. That would be exhausting. What we really want is just some peace. We want to be able to breathe. And just feel like everything is okay. We want to feel secure. 
We do not want to feel oppressed by the world that we live in. We need peace. So having set a goal, the next step in our problem-solving journey is to identify the obstacles. What stands between us and peace? Jesus gives a pretty succinct summary. He says, in the world, you have tribulation. Wow, is that all? It's just being in the world. Why? I don't know what's on your mind today. We've considered a list of possibilities already. But whether you are worried about wildfires or riots or politics, disease or human trafficking or personal or family problems, something that the world has subjected to you, you, you to, or even something you've brought on yourself, it is critically important that we recognize that these are all symptoms of an underlying problem. Imagine going to the hospital with a broken leg and the doctor diagnoses you with leg pain. He says, take some Tylenol every eight hours and it'll clear up. Now, leg pain is obvious, but if you try to treat the symptom, you're going to have at least two problems. First, the broken leg isn't going to be dealt with, and that's the real issue, and it's probably going to get worse. Second, you probably aren't even going to be able to get rid of the manifestation, the pain, because the underlying problem is not being dealt with. The symptoms are going to keep coming back, even if you can mitigate them for a while. So we have to ask, why do we have tribulation in the world? There is one fundamental reason that is universal in scope. It's the reason that everyone who exists has tribulation in the world. And there is also a secondary reason that is conditional. It doesn't apply to everyone. And the second reason is a result of the first. So we can think of it more as a subpoint than its own reason. But I want to draw attention to it for reasons that I hope will become apparent shortly. We know the primary reason that we have trouble in the world. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And 1.31 says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was not always trouble in the world. The first two chapters of Genesis tell us that originally there were not any problems at all. As difficult as this may be for us to imagine now, there was a time when nobody was stressed about anything. But when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the Lord said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. All people have tribulation in the world, because as sinners, we have invited it in. All of creation is cursed by God, because man, who was the steward of creation, 
allowed sin into his domain and submitted himself to it. The second reason that we have tribulation in the world is that we are disciples of Christ. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? John tells us in chapter 1 of his gospel, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And again in chapter 3, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So why do we have tribulation in this life? First, it is because we are sinners living in a world cursed by sin. And second, because men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So if, by God's grace, we begin to agree with Christ and to follow him, the world begins to have a special hatred for us because it hates God first and we agree with him. So now that we understand the problem, it doesn't sound so simple as just because we're in the world we have trouble. It isn't just that we have tribulation in the world because we are physically in it, but because we are by our nature in Adam part of it. And even when Christ gives us a new nature, we aren't taken out of the world, and then the world itself begins to hate us. Is the world itself an obstacle that we can overcome? No. So if we have to stop there, we are in a hopeless situation. If it's up to us to fix our own tribulations, if we have to overcome the world ourselves, then we might as well give up and try to live our best life now. Or as Paul says, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The world and the curse of sin are too much for us. Yet, despite our inability, Jesus offers his disciples hope. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Take courage, I have overcome the world. Where we are unable, Jesus is able. He has done what we cannot do, and he offers us freely the benefits of his work. Now I want to shift gears at this moment, because we're going in a direction that I think is often easy for us to dismiss. We might believe the gospel, but struggle to find its relevance in this life, in our current struggles. We know that someday, when we're in heaven, all our troubles will be gone. But what about encouragement for today? How do we have that peace which surpasses all comprehension that Paul told the Philippians about right now? For starters, let's consider the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty is a doctrine that most of us have no problem affirming, but that most of us also have difficulty applying. We try to teach our children from a young age that God is in control, but then they grow up in a world that hates God and rebels against his will, and in our experience... The world seems to get its way most of the time. Or at least God lets the world have its way most of the time. So there is often a disconnect between our knowledge of God's goodness and his sovereignty and our experience of evil in the world. A lot of times we struggle with Mark 9.23 faith. 
In Mark 9, a father with a son who is possessed by a demon comes to Jesus asking him to cast out the demon. And he says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. This is the tension that we have. We all struggle with this. We believe, we want to believe. We also live in a world that is cursed by sin and our flesh and our experience and our human wisdom make it difficult to reconcile our belief with our apparent experiences. One of the reasons that we often have difficulty trusting in the sovereignty of God is because we don't often take time to explore it. We acknowledge that God is ultimately in charge, but we don't often pursue the implications of that. We don't study the scriptures to find out how God uses his sovereignty. If we don't understand that with clarity, it can become this mystical, abstract sort of concept that we find difficult to put trust in. So we need to understand the sovereignty of God, because that will help bring some life and some energy to what we have already considered today. We are looking for hope for today, with power and authority to deliver. So we are going to go straight to the source of power and authority. If you are hoping for a long weekend and your boss says that you can take Thursday and Friday off, but then his boss comes along and says, no, no, everyone has to come to work, your hope has been dashed by a higher authority. So rather than climbing the chain of command one rung at a time to find out what hope we can have, we are going to go straight to the top. And that begins with God's sovereignty. So let's go to the beginning. If you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you can follow along. There are a lot of Christians today who read Genesis, and they get to chapter 3 and they think, how could Adam and Eve possibly have fallen for a lie that so blatantly contradicts the word of God? How could they have known God and understood his character and still chosen to reject what he said in favor of another expert, another independent fact checker? And it is a heartbreaking irony that so many of those same Christians Genuine believers who trust in Christ and believe the gospel, when they read Genesis 1 and 2, they reject what God says in favor of the prevailing secular opinions of our day. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Many Christians today read that and they think, well, he was there. But we know that millions and billions of years and maybe God sort of gave life a nudge here and there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Many Christians today question how Adam could have possibly disbelieved God so soon after creation, and they don't even make it as long as Adam did. Many Christians today don't make it past the first verse with their belief intact. Last time I preached to you, we built a case for the necessity of our reality having begun with God in the way that Genesis 1 and 2 describe. That there is no logical explanation for the existence of reality as we know it, except as described in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, I don't have time to repeat everything that I said then, but if you weren't here for that sermon and that sounds interesting to you, I'd be happy to get you a copy of my transcript. 
But going forward, understand that what I am preaching to you, or that I am preaching to you from the position that God's word is entirely trustworthy from the very first verse. So when we read, in the beginning, God, we are looking at an ironclad case for his sovereignty. John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Of course, by the word, John is referring to the second person of the triune God. He says that everything that exists came into being through him. And in case there's any room for doubt or confusion there, John also makes the negative case that apart from him, nothing came into being. In the beginning, God. Then he made everything that exists. And if he didn't make it, it doesn't exist. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, affirms Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. And the writer of Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. God's sovereignty begins with his pre-existence. In the beginning, God, and nothing else. And it is displayed in his power to bring all reality into existence simply by his spoken word. If you are looking for an ultimate source of power and authority to be the foundation of your hope, you don't have to go any further than the first four words of Genesis. But if that's not enough, and we do go past verse 1, we will see from beginning to end, from cover to cover in Scripture, that God is sovereignly directing all of human history. From the creation of the cosmos, to the rise and fall of nations, to the activities of individual people and even the animals, nothing escapes God's notice or his direction. Matthew 10 tells us that God knows when a sparrow falls from the sky. He knows how many hairs are on your head. Nothing escapes God's notice or direction. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. 
we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ, we have hope and peace and a certain secure future. And we can have courage. We should not be shaken or anxious about any of these things. What should we fear? The last detail of our verse today is that we are to take courage. Take courage, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. That Jesus instructs his disciples to be courageous tells us that he knows they are going to need to be. Things are going to get dicey. The world is going to try to scare us, to intimidate us, to threaten and change us. But in Christ, we might have peace. But outside of him, there is fear and tension and discord and ultimately hopelessness. Knowing that God is sovereign and that if we are in Christ, God is for us, what should we be anxious about? What is it reasonable to be afraid of? Persecution? 1 Peter 3.14 says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. And in Romans 8.18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Disease? How many times did Jesus and his apostles cure disease simply by speaking or by laying their hands on someone? And we know that God already has a plan to give his people new, immortal, incorruptible bodies. Disease is uncomfortable, but it is a temporary inconvenience. If we ask the question, what's, what's the worst that could happen? Many of us might jump to death. And yes, death is tragic. It is sad. But we are looking forward to the resurrection. One of the strangest, depending on your sense of humor, maybe funniest occurrences in the Bible, comes in John chapter 12. In John chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus had been, had been dead and in the tomb for days, and everyone knew it. And Jesus comes and speaks to Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come out. And he does. Verse 45 of John 11 says, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. And verse 46 says, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now, the Pharisees already did not like Jesus by this point. And so they had some cronies in the crowd that saw what had happened, and they thought, we need to go tell the Pharisees about this. They are not going to like this. And then if we jump ahead to John chapter 12, verse 10, but the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. 
Now, picture this. Jesus raises a man from the dead. And these, these servants of the Pharisees come to them and say, listen, boss, you're not going to like this. This Jesus guy just brought somebody back from the dead. And so the Pharisees all get together in a huddle and they say, all right, what are we going to do about this? We've got to kill this Lazarus guy. I don't, I don't think you heard me, boss. Jesus brought a man back from the dead. And if we consider the further accounts of scripture, we will see that Jesus raised even himself from the dead. Are we afraid of death? Whether we suffer the first death or not, we know that we are going to be given new and incorruptible bodies in the resurrection. Christ has made death impotent. Paul was not just trying to give his, his disciples false hope when he said, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Paul is mocking death because it is useless now. It is nothing. It's a minor inconvenience on the road to eternity. I know it has been a long and difficult year. And many of us are going through things right now that seem overwhelming. Don't focus on all the difficulties that you've had to endure. If we recognize that we are not promised that things will get better in this life and we focus on only the things that bother us, we are going to struggle and we are going to be tempted to despair. Friends, take courage. We have a much greater, more real, more permanent hope of good things to come than the feel-goody next year's just got to be better than this year sentiments of the world. We have real hope and peace in Jesus Christ. Because he, the perfect lamb, the son of God, has overcome the world already. And he freely offers us forgiveness and fellowship with God in him. In Christ, we have hope and peace for now and forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your graciousness and your mercy. I thank you for your word and for all of the encouragement that you have left for us in it. Father, we revel in the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, this morning. We celebrate the work that he has done on our behalf, and we just honor and praise his name. We thank you that we have an eternal hope, and that we have hope for now, despite our circumstances. Father, as we go forward in this life, I pray that you would cause us never to forget where we are going. And if there are any that have heard this message that are not trusting your son, Jesus Christ, I pray that they would be tempted by good things to come. I pray that they would be curious, and not only curious, but that they would want and desire and feel the need for forgiveness and for redemption in your son, Jesus Christ. No matter what we are going through, Father, I know there are so many who are struggling right now, but we have hope and peace and encouragement in you. And so I pray that you would just put that ever in our minds, cause us to be joyful, cause us to be hopeful, cause us to be thankful. Father, it is in the name of your glorious Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.